Every four years, thousands of volunteers step up to run the first in the nation Iowa caucuses. And it's also going to have a little bit of time spent on the Republican caucus. This is what it sounds like when a few dozen of them get in a room together to get trained. Here's how it gets, a staffer for the Iowa Democratic Party. Smile and be positive. It is very much not outside the realm of possibilities. There will come a point on caucus night when you will get stressed out. Just remember, you are probably the most and best trained person in the room. Remember, the state of Iowa doesn't run the caucuses. The parties do, with unpaid volunteers. On caucus night, some of these volunteers may be wrangling as many as a thousand people packed into classrooms and cafeterias. Some of those rooms weren't built for that many people. And in Johnson County, it's starting to show. It's the state's most reliably democratic, and it usually has high turnout. It's, I, I it's know our, you got to say what you got to say. We don't have adequate space anymore, and we all know that. That state representative, Mary Masher, she'll be running one of the precincts. We as a party should be inclusive, not eliminating people because we don't have adequate space. For some of the volunteers who are running this thing, dealing with the chance of record turnout and some new rules on top of it, they're starting to feel the pressure. I'm Kate Payne. I'm Clay Masters. From the newsroom of Iowa Public Radio, this is Caucus Land. Iowans have to show up promptly by 7 o'clock at neighborhood precincts all across the state on caucus night. Sometimes this system of volunteers and high school gyms and cafeterias gets overwhelmed. We ran out of voter registrations. We ran out of sign-in sheets. I never saw the pizza box that people supposedly signed in on, but I did get paper towels back with people signed in. There's no stopping by on your lunch hour, no putting a ballot in the mail, because there are no ballots. This is not a primary election. So why does Iowa go through with this every four years? There is a lot riding on Iowa being the first in the nation caucus state, and there's some pressure from insiders and outsiders for Iowa to change it. We'll talk about why some of those changes have not happened, and we'll take a look at Iowa's relationship with that other first in the nation state with Lauren Chuljan, who hosts New Hampshire Public Radio's podcast, Stranglehold. Plus, conversations with two of the Democratic candidates, former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg and entrepreneur Andrew Yang. Caucus Land is sponsored by Gravitate Coworking and by Cornell College in Mount Vernon, Iowa, where students get a first-in-the-nation, hands-on experience with the political process every election cycle. Explore interdisciplinary learning at cornellcollege.edu. This is Caucus Land from Iowa Public Radio. We got this call from a listener a while ago, Christian in Colorado. And he really wanted to know fundamentally why do some states, like Iowa and his state, have caucuses and primaries? It's bewildering. If you type it in on Google, what is, what is the difference? It is just a bunch of information, barely sums it up. Yes, Iowa will have a caucus in February, and then in June, they'll hold a primary vote. Because there are still a lot of contested primaries for voters to sort out before November 2020, like a U.S. Senate race on the Democratic side to go up against Republican Joni Ernst. Republican Congressman Steve King has some challengers in Iowa's 4th Congressional District, too. But for the presidential race, it's a caucus. And when you go to a caucus, you're not voting. You're not pushing a button or filling in an oval. You are caucusing. You're showing your support for the candidate who you want to run in the general election by physically going to a designated part of a room. That's how the delegates get sorted out. 
A lot of people scrutinize Iowa's caucus process. Critics say there's so much that could go wrong here because, again, state officials are not running these precincts. It's unpaid volunteers. They're trained and they're dedicated, but still. Now, there are plenty of people who love the Iowa caucuses and don't want to change it. But for those who do want to see some changes in Iowa, there's a major barrier, that other first-in-the-nation state, New Hampshire. Lots of people in New Hampshire are as dedicated to their first-in-the-nation status as diehard Iowans are. But the defender of the New Hampshire primary, that's Bill Gardner. He's a 71-year-old Secretary of State, and he's been in that office since 1976. Now, New Hampshire state law says the Granite State has to be the first primary in the country. Now, here's the kicker. Bill Gardner lets Iowa stay first as long as Iowa's process doesn't start to look too much like a primary. But of course, that's what the DNC ultimately wants, more of a primary-style process. And anytime one of the political parties in Iowa wants to make some changes, they have Gardner breathing down their necks, making sure Iowa doesn't overstep its bounds. In early 2019, the Iowa Democratic Party was making some changes to the caucuses. And when I asked Troy Price, the chairman of the party, if they'd talked to New Hampshire about it, he brought up Gardner. We have always had a great relationship with Secretary Gardner. And uh, our conversation last week where we talked through a lot of this went really well. And we really appreciated his feedback and his thoughts. There's this other public radio podcast focused on the first in the nation process. It's called Stranglehold from New Hampshire Public Radio. We spoke with Lauren Chuljan. She's one of the hosts. And we'll talk with her in a minute. But first, we wanted to play this great scene in the first episode of Stranglehold. This is when officials from Iowa flew out to New Hampshire to meet with their counterparts in 1999. Now, this was because New Hampshire had decided to move their primary. The first voice you'll hear is Rob Tully. He led the Iowa Democratic Party that year. Basically, it came down to this. I'm just going to cut to the chase. This is bullshit. We're New Hampshire, and God damn it, you shouldn't move. <laughs> this is, you know, I don't give a shit about Iowa. Patience was wearing thin. Gardner was really getting the best of one person in particular, Chet Culver, his Iowa counterpart. And I don't think Chet Culver, Secretary of State, or someone who wanted to run for governor someday, and he did, wanted to be the person who lost the Iowa caucuses. So I think he was very, very frustrated. And just so you can get an image of this, Bill Gardner is kind of a bookish guy, thin, favors cardigan sweater vests. Chet Culver, he was a tight end for Virginia Tech. Some tempers flaring. I remember Secretary of State Culver at one point um, getting pretty hot under the collar. Um, he, and he's a big guy. <laughs> when, when he starts yelling, you notice. <laughs> and he started to yell. <laughs> okay, this is so funny you say that because there's a bit in Bill Gardner's book where it says, um, the meeting lasted over two and a half hours with a friendly exchange of views, except at one point, the tension in the room became so great, Joe Keefe nearly had to restrain one of the visiting out-of-state house guests. Is that true? That would be Chet Culver. <laughs> I don't know if he insulted Chet or, or, or what, but yeah, Chet was just beside himself. <laughs> he he can get angry. That's right, Joe. I remember Joe literally had to put his arms around him. Oh God. So we talked with Lauren Children about Bill Gardner, about how this guy who's been New Hampshire's Secretary of State since the 1970s could have so much power. We wanted to know what happens when he's no longer in office. So if he leaves or if he dies in office, 
Yes, the the state laws of New Hampshire say that it is up to the Secretary of State's office to announce the date of the primary, to announce when filing starts. So that power still is rested in that particular person. However, a lot of this has also been because of his personality. Sure. And so I think it is a question who then, like, I think it is a question that the person who takes over, how their personality factors into this other part of the job. So the caucuses are on, but that doesn't mean there isn't a threat to the system. One of the threats is the popularity of the caucuses themselves and some of the largest precincts. I mean, this whole process started before Iowa was even a state, with just a few people getting together in farmhouses to talk politics. Now, there could be a thousand people showing up at some of these precincts. And in a lot of these neighborhoods, there isn't a room big enough to hold all of them. John Deeth is in charge of coordinating the caucus process in Johnson County, and he's kind of stressed. He's the guy we heard from earlier talking about signing people into caucus on paper towels. Since then, we've been better prepared, but we can we can pack more voter registration forms. We can pack more sign-in sheets. We can even pack more paper towels if we think we need to. What we can't do is make the room bigger, and that's the problem that we're coming up with in Johnson County and in some scattered precincts in some of the other urban counties is that the biggest room in the precinct is no longer big enough to hold the number of people who want to attend. Now, we should say overcrowding is not an issue in a lot of Iowa precincts. Local officials say in some of the rural parts of the state, the caucuses are still one of the best ways to get people involved in the political process. But in these deep blue urban areas, record turnout is becoming a logistical issue. And it's putting people like Deeth in a difficult situation. He's a Democratic Party guy. He wants people to get out there and get involved. But he says in some of these big precincts, the system isn't working anymore. It's gotten to the point that Deeth himself wants the state to move to a primary for the Iowa caucuses to come to an end. And this is the guy running the caucuses in the state's most Democratic county. More and more and more in the last four years, I've heard people say, I don't care about first anymore. I just want to vote or I want an absentee ballot. I want to take my ballot home and vote it. And unfortunately, if your primary consideration is the politics of Iowa versus New Hampshire and staying first, that's that hasn't been happening. In the meantime, he says he's doing the best he can with what he's got. Coming up after the break, a conversation with former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Caucus Land is sponsored by Cornell College and by Gravitate Coworking, providing flexible workspace for freelancers, remote workers, teams, or anyone sending emails from a couch or a coffee shop, including those in Iowa for the caucuses, with premier co-working spaces in downtown Des Moines and Historic Valley Junction. Learn more at gravitatecoworking.com. If you like what you're hearing, please take a few seconds to like and share this episode. Use the hashtag caucusland and check back for new episodes. The Iowa caucuses will soon be over, but the big political season in Iowa? That's just getting started. The Iowa legislature will be in session through the spring, and our weekly podcast, Under the Golden Dome, will be there. Follow the action by subscribing to Under the Golden Dome wherever you listen to podcasts. High-quality journalism is more important now than it has ever been. If you've learned something today by listening to this episode, make a contribution now at iowapublicradio.org. It's your support that makes podcasts like Caucus Land possible. 
This is Caucus Land from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Clay Masters. I'm Kate Payne. On a rainy Saturday night in late December, Deborah Barry takes the stage at a Pete Buttigieg town hall at the Val Air Ballroom in West Des Moines. Barry is a former state representative in Iowa from Waterloo. She'd endorsed Buttigieg earlier that day. You know, I'm representing Waterloo. The largest concentration of African Americans incarcerated came out of Black Hawk County. So I needed to hear from Mayor Pete, what's your plan to address these issues? Well, you know what? He has one. It's called the Douglas Plan. And the beautiful thing about that plan, it affects, it will affect and help all of us. It doesn't just stop with black and brown people. It affects all of us for a better America. When Buttigieg came out to greet the crowd, he gave Barry a big hug. Thank you so much. What a wonderful welcome. You always make me feel right at home here in Iowa. Thank you for coming out to join us tonight. As of early January, Buttigieg is doing really well in the overwhelmingly white states of Iowa and New Hampshire. But he's facing big challenges with black voters later in the voting calendar in South Carolina. We asked him about that moments after he wrapped up his town hall in West Des Moines. Moving forward past the Iowa caucuses, I mean, February 3rd is going to come and it's going to go. I mean, say you finish well and you move forward to uh, other contests in other states, you know, a lot of times there are people who will make the comparison of you to Barack Obama. Sometimes you even kind of hint towards that when you get on stage and talk about, I remember a guy with a name who was hard to pronounce also coming to Iowa and doing quite well. I mean, like, how do you move forward not being a black U.S. senator from Chicago in, in states like South Carolina to unlock that vote? Well, you know, I've met President Obama. I've gotten to know President Obama, and I'll be the first to admit that I am no Barack Obama. (laughs) I'm flattered when I'm compared to him because there's a lot uh, that I admire and, of course, a lot of lessons that we draw uh, from, uh, in particular, the way that Iowa um, put him over the top. But uh, this is a a different moment and uh, calls for, I think, uh, an approach that is what has allowed us to advance past a lot of better-known candidates to get this far. And I think that's what will serve us well as we move ahead, too. Uh, That includes building a diverse coalition. Uh, And the good news is the more people get to know us, uh, the more support we find that we get uh, across all different kinds of voters. But we know we have to go out there and do the work. And that's especially true in the South, where people don't know me as well. Um, But what we found is that our message, it's not a message I have to change up. Well, when I'm talking to an audience in one state or another state, it's a message for the American people. Uh, It's resonating. It's serving us well. And we've got to keep getting it to everybody we can. And so you have been making trips to South Carolina. What is it that you feel is resonating with black voters there for you? Well, I think every election is about this question. It's about the question on the voter's mind of how's my life going to be different if you're president instead of one of the others. And we need to make sure we keep speaking to that because the current president has a gift for changing the subject. He usually changes the subject to himself. But the voters, uh, black voters that that I meet in particular, want to know what we're going to do about profound racial and economic inequalities that continue, what we're going to do uh, about supporting economic empowerment, what we're going to do about health, uh, which has tremendous inequities right now, what we're going to do about reforms to a criminal legal system that is not always worthy of the name of justice. And uh, what my experience has taught me is on one hand just how intractable some of these issues are and at the same time just how much can be done especially with the powers of the presidency and we need to make sure that this continues to be a process of of dialogue of listening 
uh, as well as sharing our vision and sharing our plans. Uh, I would stack up the Douglas plan and the vision we have for tackling racial inequality in this country against anything that's been offered in these times by a presidential campaign. But it's not just about what's in your plans. It's about your readiness to get these things done. And my job is to make sure that voters can see that as well as see what it is I'm proposing to do. And so you would be the youngest president ever elected, uh, but you have been working on a resume to to suit that office, Um, going to Harvard, Oxford, military service, your your private consulting work. Um, There is also a reputation that you've had since high school of of being someone who could be a future president, who who was on that path. And there is a perception uh, that this was a calculated move on your behalf, uh, that there was real ambition there from from the get-go. And so based on that resume that you've built, that's that's what you're running on. Why is that enough to make you fit for this office in this field that has vastly more experience than you? Well, you know, it's funny. I don't think I'd get the question about experience if I were a senator. Uh, And yet, In this country, you could be a very senior senator and have never in your life managed more than 100 people, depending what you were doing before. I would argue that while no experience is like being president, I would also say that it's hard to think of an experience in government that's more relevant to our times than being a mayor responsible for a city in the industrial Midwest that was described as dying at the beginning of this decade, uh, guiding that city through a transformation and representing a new generation, but also uh, representing uh, so many people uh, in so many communities like mine that have felt left behind and passed over by uh, not only by official Washington, but also by a president now who pays lip service to these communities and, and uh, reveals that all he uh, really has at heart is, is the interests of uh, uh, corporations and, and, and the wealthy that, that benefit from his tax policy and his other policies. Um, look, I... I did not expect that this would be what I would be doing in 2019 and 2020. Uh, And I guess when you run for any office, you reveal yourself to have some level of ambition. Um, But if I was the kind of guy who plotted everything out, then as a young Democrat, I probably would have set up shop somewhere other than the state of Indiana. Uh, Sometimes you just got to take a step that you believe in. It's what led me to to take that first run for state treasurer when the odds were almost impossible. Uh, It's what led me to decide to serve my community. And it's what led me in a way that would have surprised the hell out of me (laughs) looking into the future from just a few years ago to decide to do this now because what I think America needs right now is a different kind of voice, a different kind of approach, a different kind of style, but a certain kind of experience, including that of guiding a city through a transformation and, for what it's worth, that of having been sent to war on the orders of a U.S. president, which I think helps shape anybody's understanding uh, who would run for that office of what's at stake in the decisions they make in that building. You bring up your military experience the Washington Post recently came out with a collection of documents uh, that demonstrated that the, the U.S. military officials and elected leaders uh, misled the public uh, about the war in Afghanistan for almost 20 years. Uh, you served in that war. Uh, there were comments made that this was unwinnable, questioning if thousands of people had died in vain. Uh, what's going wrong and what would you change as president? 
Well, it's clear that we've been operating for a long time without a clear sense of what the mission is. And this is not only a problem of executive leadership or a problem that you can uh, lay at the feet of the military. I think a lot of it's that Congress has not provided a lot of direction. Look, we're operating over there based on an authorization that was passed about 18 years ago to deal with 9-11. There are people packing their bags for Afghanistan who weren't born on 9-11. It's why I agree that we need to repeal and replace the authorization for the use of military force. And we need to act to make sure that any military engagement in the future has a very clear defined mission. Our military objective in Afghanistan is to keep the American people physically safe. We have other objectives, political objectives, that are very important, uh, including preserving the gains that have been made in the status of women and contributing to Afghanistan's uh, uh, future stability. Uh, but we've got to make sure we have a very clear definition of uh, what will call for the use of troops. And I believe a much higher bar, whether it's there or anywhere around the world, for when we would engage. Is it unwinnable? Well, I think we have to decide what winning even means at this point. Uh, I believe it's absolutely possible with a very limited presence to make sure it's no longer used as an attack, uh, as the base for an attack on the U.S. homeland. Uh, other objectives are going to take a longer time. Look, it's, it's not going to be a functioning Western-style democracy anytime soon. That can't be our definition of success. A longer time, you say, this has been nearly two decades, and, and you've mentioned the young people who are heading into this war who were not alive during 2001. I mean, uh, President Obama has tried to leave this war, President Trump as well. Would you guarantee to bring troops out of Afghanistan in your first term? Well, I'm going to make the choices that are responsible to keep the American people safe based on what's going on. But I would have said uh, in the past that uh, our goal should be to exit as quickly as possible. I believe it's feasible to draw our ground troops out, uh, at least the large numbers of ground troops we see within a year. I also think that we're going to see some kind of specialized intelligence and operation, special operations presence for Perhaps quite a while. We had that in Syria. <laughs> Ironically, it was there in Syria helping keep the peace until the president abruptly withdrew it. Um, that is a big part of what the medium run is going to have to look like in Afghanistan. Um, and so turning back to your experience, Mr. Mayor, um, you mentioned before the statewide race uh, that you did not win for uh, in, in Indiana. Um, Opponents of yours have pointed this out, uh, that you do not have experience at the state level, at the federal level, um, with your most recent mayor's race, I believe it was, you won that office by about 8,000 votes total. Um, you've, the most votes you won in, in your previous mayor's race was about 10,000 votes. Uh, so why is that fact that you have never won more than some 10,000 votes, why is that not a critical mistake, a, a critical failing in... <laughs> a critical a, mistake or failing? Look, I mean, uh, right experience. now we have a president of the United States who never won an election in his life before but is he, he took office. Mr. Mayor, uh, is, um, is that the metric uh -huh. for And here's something office? else. You know, it's interesting to have somebody say it's an argument against your running that you lost an election in your 20s. That's an experience that I think most modern presidents have. Uh, I would say I learned as much, maybe more, from the times that I haven't won as I have from the times that I did. Makes me a better candidate. I think it would make me a better president. Uh, look, I get that I don't have the kind of Washington establishment experience that some people think is a, uh, the qualification for the presidency. I would also say that the fact that the current president was ever even able to be within cheating distance of the presidency reveals the general disgust the American people have with business as usual in Washington. And I count it as a great strength 
that I've gathered my experience elsewhere. All right. Mayor Buttigieg, thank you. Thanks. Good to be with you. Thanks. Thanks. We interviewed Buttigieg in late December. This was the week before President Trump had ordered the killing of Iranian Major General Qasem Soleimani. You're listening to Caucus Land from Iowa Public Radio. Entrepreneur Andrew Yang has been doing better than basically anyone would have predicted. Yang was back in Iowa for a campaign swing just four days into the new year. He made a stop in the small town of Perry that Friday night. His team was expecting 50 people. About 200 showed up. The coffee shop was so packed he climbed up on the counter to talk to the crowd. So the candidates all come here because they know the power that you have in your hands. I did the math. Do you know how many Californians each Iowan is worth? 1,000 Californians each. That's right. That is the power in this cafe tonight. What is the fire code in this place? All right, I'm going to give a Trumpian estimate. There are 1,200 people in this cafe. Before the Perry event, he sat down with us at a union hall in Des Moines. A lot of times when I was covering Donald Trump during the run-up to the Iowa caucuses four years ago, when he was talking about economic messages, he was talking about the threat of immigration on the economy. Uh, you talk about the threat of automation on the economy, but there is exit polling and social science research that shows that uh, loss of status and racial resentment were associated with voters in 2016. How do you know that your message about automation will resonate more with Rust Belt voters in places like uh, Michigan and Pennsylvania? I've been campaigning for almost two years. I have spoken to thousands of Americans in Iowa and the Midwest. And when I've said, hey, if you go to a factory in Michigan, it's not wall-to-wall immigrants, it's wall-to-wall robot arms and machines, I have gotten so much nodding and approval and recognition and never heard anyone say, no, it's not machines, it's immigrants. Americans recognize the truth when they hear it. And in the numbers, it's clear it's technology and automation. And in their experience, it's technology and automation. Because when I talk to folks who work in these manufacturing fields, one union shop told me that they had six welders that got replaced by a welding robot, and they fired five of the welders, and now the sixth welder just ministers to the robot. So if you go to those people and say, hey, is technology automation, they say, yes, it is, because I've seen it myself. And so on the aspect of Trump and, and his appeal, uh, there was this economist YouGov poll a while back that showed that you and Senator Bernie Sanders were actually the only two Democrats in the field gaining double-digit support uh, from 2016 Trump voters. And so I'm curious if that crossover appeal that you have with some of that Trump voters, those Trump voters, does that make it harder for you to appeal to more conventional Democrats in this race? Quite the opposite, because if you ask Democrats what their number one criteria is for the nominee, it's to beat Donald Trump. And so if you're already peeling off 10% of Donald Trump supporters or more, that means that when I'm the nominee, we win because you have to get disaffected Trump voters, independents, and libertarians, as well as Democrats and progressives. So when more Democrats realize that I am the strongest candidate to defeat Donald Trump in 2020, they will be thrilled to support my candidacy. We also asked Yang if he thought President Trump's decision to order the killing of Iranian Major General Qasem Soleimani was justified. Well, again, you have to look at it in context where you have this series of escalating provocations 
And to me, the goal is to not find yourself in that kind of pattern uh, that leads no place that is going to make Americans safer. So uh, you can't just take the event in isolation. You have to look at all of the decisions that led to it. And how would you approach foreign policy as a president then? Because it's not something that comes to mind when people might think of your campaign. The next commander-in-chief has to have a sense of the greatest threats of this time, which to me include climate change, artificial intelligence, and cybersecurity, loose nuclear material. We need to rebuild our partnerships and alliances abroad and invest in diplomacy and stop being as maximalist with our foreign policy goals. We spent over a trillion dollars in Iraq, six trillion dollars in the Middle East. Much of that could have been better spent making our communities stronger and healthier here at home. So my foreign policy will be guided by a different set of priorities uh, and be much more judicious and restrained. I want to move to a couple issues in the time that we have uh, left here. On health care, you have said that you support the spirit of Medicare for all. What do you mean by that? Well, I support universal health care. We need to get to a point where every American is covered. The thing I differ uh, uh, on is whether we can legislate away private insurance. I do not think that we can or should. I think that the government has to provide a public coverage plan that demonstrates that it's a better option than the private insurance plans and outcompetes the private plans over time. Okay. And so you say uh, that we shouldn't be in the position of, of legislating away private insurance companies. I mean, for those folks who see those companies as rapidly driving up the costs of their needed medicines, EpiPens, you know, insulin, uh, why, what is the role of, of private insurance then? And why should it not be legislated away? Well, private insurance carriers need to have genuine competition. Right now, no one in America has ever gotten this letter from their private insurance company. Your rates are going down next year. It's like their business model is just to jack up prices every year. But if you had a public plan that is not gouging you at every turn, and instead of getting um, brought over a barrel for this overpriced private insurance plan, you could get much less expensive, even nearly free coverage, publicly, then all of a sudden, you'll see those private insurance plans be like, wait a minute, maybe I can't just raise the prices every single period. Or they will go out of business and get squeezed out of the market. This is the role that the government has to play. We have to put the incentives in place so that we all have affordable, high-quality health care coverage. And also, that puts pressure on the private insurers to get their acts together. One of the other main issues that come up from caucus goers, likely caucus goers, when I go to events regularly is climate change. Uh, people in Iowa are very interested in this. I'm, I'm curious, how do you get buy-in from rural Iowa, rural America, uh, farmers who regularly will tell me in interviews that they don't like regulation bearing down on them and making decisions on what they can do on their land? Like, How do you get buy-in for them in a general election? Well, many people here in Iowa saw the recent floods and they, they feel that climate change is accelerating and voters ask me about it all the time as well. What we have to do is get rid of this tug of war where people feel like fighting climate change means higher prices, greater inconvenience, fewer jobs, and instead show people that addressing climate change can be a massive job creator, can create tons of economic value. The fact is the cost of climate change 
is going to be trillions of dollars and unfortunately thousands and thousands of American lives. So we have to invest right now in protecting ourselves and our communities from climate change. We do have to stop subsidizing the fossil fuel companies to the tune of tens of billions of dollars. That's uh, well past what it should be and start subsidizing wind and solar, which would benefit many producers right here in Iowa. Entrepreneur Andrew Yang, thanks for your time. Thanks. Thank you both. All right, the Iowa caucuses are now less than a month away. And just two days into 2020, we have another candidate who suspended their campaign. Former Housing Secretary Julian Castro dropped out on January 2nd. Caucus Land is produced by me, Clay Masters, Kate Payne, and John Pemble. Our music was composed by Garrett Schmid and performed by Garrett and Aaron James. Our news director is Michael Leland. Our executive producer is Katherine Perkins. We also get help from our digital team, Matt Siren and Lindsay Moon. Subscribe to Caucus Land wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and share the show. Caucus Land is a production of Iowa Public Radio.